Hey, hey, Prime members, talking to you. You can listen to CBS Mornings on the go ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. This episode is brought to you in part by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like The Guest List by Lucy Foley. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. Welcome to the CBS This Morning podcast. I'm Jeff Baradelli, CBS News meteorologist and climate specialist. A key issue in the 2020 presidential election is climate change. And today we're going to examine where the two candidates, President Donald Trump and former Vice President Joe Biden, stand on combating climate change with energy policy expert Leah Stokes. She's an assistant professor of political science at UC Santa Barbara. Leah is also the author of a new book called Short Circuiting Policy and host of the brand new podcast, A Matter of Degrees. Leah joins me now via Zoom from California. Welcome, Leah. Oh, thanks so much for having me on. So, Leah, I thought I'd set the stage by talking first about where we stand on climate change. Just how bad are things and how bad may they become in the future? Well, unfortunately, climate change is happening now. We've already warmed the planet by one degree Celsius. And in certain parts of the United States, like Southern California, where I live, the warming is actually even greater. It's two degrees Celsius. And so we are seeing the impacts of that climate change right now, whether it's heat waves that are just torturing the Western United States with week after week of record heat, or fires that have burned up the Western coast. We've burned an area the sides of New Jersey this summer in uh, California, Oregon, and Washington State, or hurricanes, so many hurricanes that we have run out of letters of the alphabet, or flooding. I mean, we are seeing the effects of climate change all across this country uh, right now. You live in California, and you've gone through this fire season. You know, this has been the worst fire season in modern history by far. And you mentioned in an article that I read that a friend of yours had to wear two masks, one for smoke and one for COVID. So just how difficult has this season been for the people out there? Well, before the fires hit uh, back in August, a lot of us who work in climate knew that we were going to be facing a really tough disaster season, usually We get a lot of climate impacts from August uh, through October, November with fires and hurricanes and heat waves and a lot of different events. Um, But I think we even underestimated just how bad it would get. It's very hard for people who are sheltering at home um, in order to keep themselves and their family safe from COVID to have to evacuate their homes or, you know, to not be able to open up their windows when it's so hot during a heat wave because the wildfire smoke is so terrible that it has literally turned the skies orange. 
you know, people have just been dealing with so much in California, but also in Oregon, for example, where entire towns are now gone because of the fires or in Washington, where they've been very hard hit by COVID and also by fires and smoke. So it's been a really hard year for so many people in the Western United States, not just because of COVID, but also because of climate change. So let's switch to politics now. Uh, President Trump either does not accept that climate change is real or he pretends to not accept that the science is real uh, so that it doesn't get in the way of his agenda. To be honest with you, I'm not really sure. He said recently the earth is going to cool, which, of course, is, you know, runs against everything that climate scientists are saying. And he also says he doesn't think the scientists know. Uh, The Trump administration has rolled back or attempted to roll back 162 environmental regulations. One of them is restricting the use of some science for policymaking. So how does this denial of climate science set us back? And how much does it delay action on climate change? Well, I think you've hit on so many important points there, Jeff. The fact because it will allow us to protect people. When it comes to climate change, this administration has rolled back so many environmental protections, whether that's about clean air or clean water or carbon pollution or methane emissions. It's hard to come up with something that they haven't rolled back. So it's really been a very damaging time in terms of making progress on the climate crisis. And if we don't change course soon, uh, we could be facing even worse fire seasons, even worse heat waves and hurricane seasons than we have had in this terrible year of 2020. What do you think four more years of a Trump administration may mean for climate change, both here in the U.S. and also around the world? Well, the stakes could not be higher in this election. We're beginning to see catastrophic effects from just one degree Celsius of warming. So what will it look like if we hit one and a half degrees or two degrees, which is what the Paris target is? It's hard to imagine, let alone if we shoot past that to three degrees or four degrees warming. And that's really where we're on track for right now. So unless we change course in the next administration, It's hard to imagine that we can globally get on top of this problem. And the United States is really um, a leader in terms of innovation and technology globally. So if we don't have a government that's investing in science, that's deploying new technology and creating innovation that can be shared with countries around the world, then it's hard to imagine that we can really tackle this problem at the pace that's necessary. I think you bring up a good point. You know, us pulling out of the Paris Agreement, at least for now, in itself is bad. But but the example that it sets for the rest of the world and it gives other countries an out, right, uh, to not take climate change as seriously. If the U.S. was leading, you'd think that other countries would be more prone to follow. Yeah, it's not so much the Paris Agreement per se, although I think that has really broken through for a lot of people in this country. They don't want the United States to be a laggard internationally. They're ashamed of what the Trump administration has done. But more than sort of words on paper in an agreement, what we need is countries around the world changing their own domestic laws in a way that puts us on a path to reducing warming. And we know that countries are not on that path at all. And the United States being such a huge engine of 
economic growth and innovation and technology globally, if we are not part of this transition, who else is going to be leading it? Who else will be helping to get that technology to countries around the world? So I really think that we need a government in the United States, a federal government that is taking this crisis seriously because it will allow us to create technology and share that technology with countries all around the world. So let's talk about the Biden plan. He increased his plan. It was 1.7 trillion over 10 years. Now it's 2 trillion over four years. Um, Now that may sound like a lot of money, but the coronavirus stimulus just this year alone so far is 2.2 trillion. His plan is 2 trillion over four years. That's not quite the Green New Deal. Uh, But um, I've talked to you personally about this and you said that it's quite aggressive. So do you believe that it's a good plan? Absolutely. Uh, Biden has called his plan the Biden Green Deal, and I think it has come so far. It's so clear that the Biden campaign has been listening to climate activists, to environmental justice groups. In fact, I understand that Vice President Biden himself has been meeting with frontline environmental justice activists. And I think that shows a real commitment on the part of the campaign to address the climate crisis alongside racial injustice. The plan now, as it stands, is, as you said, $2 trillion, which if you assume that each year the federal government spends about $4 trillion, that's actually 20% of the federal budget over a four-year window. So that's a very big number. The other thing that they've done is they've committed to 100% clean electricity by 2035. And that is a faster timeline than any law that any state has on the books in this country, including leaders like California and New York. And finally, they've said that 40% of those climate investments are going to go to frontline groups, that we're not going to keep making the same mistake, which is have environmental incentives, things like helping people put solar panels on their roofs or adopt electric vehicles, we're not going to only have those to go to wealthy white families, which is what has been happening because of the way the tax credits are designed. The idea is that 40% of investments are going to go to frontline groups instead. You know, I don't think a lot of people realize, but combating climate change is a huge job creator. And at its core, both the Green New Deal and Biden's plan, Biden Green Deal, I think you called it, <laughs> um, are renewable energy job creation plans. It's not just renewable energy, but energy efficiency and infrastructure plans. So tell me more about, about how that kind of injection of capital and this plan uh, to kind of spur the green revolution forward is a job plan. It really is a job plan. When you think about climate change, I think a lot of people get overwhelmed. They think, oh my gosh, we have to cut emissions so quickly. We have only till 2030 to make a lot of progress. It's so overwhelming. But turn that around. When you feel like you have a lot to do, what can you do? You can hire people to help you, right? You can create jobs. And that's the exact same idea with climate action. There's so much to do. And therefore, there's a lot of work, a lot of job creation that can go alongside it. In fact, there's one report from the Sierra Club that suggests that we could be creating 9 million jobs a year every year for the next decade if we really took this crisis seriously. And as you said, Jeff, they would be in all kinds of parts of our economy. Let's take, for example, our homes. 
A lot of us right now have fossil gas in our homes. We use it for cooking food, for heating our furnaces, and we need to get that out of our homes, not just for our own health and safety, because fossil gas can be quite bad for you to inhale, but also for climate reasons. Well, that exists in a lot of homes across this country, which means that we need people to be employed to come and retrofit homes and remove that fossil gas and maybe do energy efficiency upgrades at the same time. And those jobs can be created in every city, every county, every state across this country, and they cannot be taken overseas. So that means that this isn't just a plan for certain wealthier or coastal parts of our country. It's really a plan for everybody across this country, including areas that have really been uninvested in, such as, uh, you know, places like the Midwest, you know, where a lot of jobs have been lost. So this is a great opportunity to really focus on domestic job creation and build a clean energy future that at the same time creates millions of good paying jobs that cannot be taken overseas. The word you just mentioned, opportunity. You know, it, it, it's not a word that's often spoken when we talk about climate change. We talk about problems and catastrophe, but actually in many ways, climate change, as you've been talking about, is in fact an opportunity. And, you know, you were mentioning lots of possible jobs that'll be created. And of course, politicians are always promising things, but the reality is, is that the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics says that the fastest growing job right now is wind and wind technician. And the third fastest uh, job occupation growth is solar technician. So it's actually happening right now. And of course, you also mentioned millions of jobs. Well, you know, the Rewiring America uh, report that came out just a few weeks ago mentioned that we could create up to 25 million jobs by turning the electricity sector, essentially electrifying the, the whole U.S. economy over the course of, let's say, 15 years or so. So this doesn't just seem like a promise. It actually look, it looks like it's happening right now. Exactly. We also have the opportunity for those to be good paying jobs and to make sure that we are redistributing wealth in our society so that people in the middle class or low income people, that they all have an opportunity to have meaningful and good paying work. And that really is a different approach than we've seen before in climate policy. The idea that Joe Biden has taken is let's invest in the middle class. Let's invest in job creation rather than saying that this whole problem is about sacrifice and taxes and things like that. In fact, Joe Biden has said many times, as had Kamala Harris, that they're not going to raise taxes on people making $400,000 or less. And so really, this is a new approach to thinking about climate action. It's not about sacrifice or taxes or penalties. It's really about opportunity, job growth, and sharing the wealth across society. Yeah, and I think what you're talking about is so interesting because it's not an understatement to say that the folks, especially in, in a lot of communities across the United States, in, in the middle of America, um, who built this country with their bare hands, you know, and fossil fuels help build this country too, that they are feeling left behind. And this idea that there could be uh, essentially another not industrial revolution, but a green revolution that would replace the industrial revolution and bring, you know, pride back to to these communities and inject capital into these communities um, and bring the communities back together, which have been ravaged by manufacturing being shipped overseas. Um, I find it so intriguing because in climate change, 
we find a problem that if we mobilize, we can actually solve more than just an environmental problem. We can solve uh, a problem of, of job creation and economic woes that we're suffering through in the U.S., Absolutely. Take, for example, Mike Siegel. This is a person running for Congress right now in Texas, and he just released this ad which featured a union worker from the fossil fuel industry in Texas talking about why he supports a climate policy agenda, why he sees the future in clean energy. Because so many people in the fossil fuel economy, everyday workers, whether they're working in oil or gas or coal, you know, those people are being left behind by their own corporations. A lot of times when these companies go bankrupt, what they do is they create golden parachutes for their executives, give them huge payouts a few weeks before the company goes bankrupt and then they lay off everybody else and they often gut people's pensions and I think a lot of people in those industries are starting to see that those companies are not looking out for them that they're not thinking about how can we make sure that this transition is done in a way that doesn't devastate communities and devastate working class people and I just know that the Biden plan is not going to be that approach, that it's going to be about making sure that people in these fossil fuel intensive communities and jobs have a place in the clean energy future. Because, you know, this isn't about punishing workers who have worked in the energy sector. They have created a lot of wealth for this country. They have powered this country in many ways. Um, But we need them to come along for the clean energy transition. And the only way to do that is to make real commitments and to say that we are going to invest, for example, in communities that have a coal mine closing, as Senator Manchin has proposed. Or we're going to invest in communities that have a coal plant closing, as has happened in New Mexico. We have to make sure that as we transition, we're not leaving workers or communities behind, because that's not fair, and it's also not a winning agenda for governing. So Joe Biden has what is a pretty aggressive climate plan. Um, President Trump does not have a climate plan, but we can judge by what he's been doing for the past three to four years. So so what exactly has Trump done in terms of regulations? He has rolled back clean water rules, um, clean air rules. So he's made it less safe for everyday Americans in terms of their exposure to pollutants. And that literally costs people their lives. Uh, both directly because of uh, lung disease and asthma, but also indirectly by making it more likely for people to die from COVID. So these are very impactful decisions. In addition, he's done things like roll back methane leakage regulations. So the Obama administration tried to tighten up methane pollution, which is a very potent greenhouse gas that is part of the fossil gas infrastructure. Fossil gas or natural gas is actually just methane. And there's all these little holes in the system where that gas leaks away and it warms up the planet even more than carbon dioxide. And unfortunately, those rules have been rolled back. So companies don't have to try to reduce that leakage, which is economically costly and also terrible for climate change. And of course, he has gutted the very small climate regulations that we managed to get in place, what we would call the Clean Power Plan. This was the backup after Congress didn't pass any climate legislation during Obama's time. And he basically undermined that. And I'll also say that in addition to rolling back regulations, 
Trump has been a very close friend to the fossil fuel industry. He has appointed heads of all the major agencies, the Environmental Protection Agency, the Department of um, Energy, the Department of the Interior. All of these heads have very strong ties to the industry, are former lobbyists, and they have been doing the bidding of the industry. For example, the CARES Act, which was the coronavirus stimulus bill, that was supposed to be helping everyday Americans who are struggling under the pandemic. But a lot of that money went to the fossil fuel industry to bail out these companies that were actually doing poorly before the pandemic. And it didn't even have requirements that those fossil fuel companies had to keep people employed. We don't even know how much money the Trump administration has been pushing towards these fossil fuel companies during the pandemic because they refuse to tell us. So it's hard to overstate just how terrible the Trump administration has been on the climate file. I think a lot of people can relate to auto emissions, the rollback of of auto emissions and the challenging of California's uh, emission standards. Uh, that's that's the big one. And I'm sure you can you can speak to that. In addition, you know, recently there was an article about the Trump administration trying to appoint climate doubters, climate contrarians, climate deniers to lead, you know, climate at NOAA, the preeminent uh, organization in the world on, on climate research. Is that is that correct? Absolutely. You know, those rollbacks of our clean cars regulations are really going to set us back in terms of cleaning up our transportation emissions. And we've seen with our own eyes what the consequences of that were. During the early days of the pandemic, when everybody was staying home, the skies cleared above major cities like Los Angeles or Chicago or New York because people weren't driving. And people saw for the first time what clean air could look like if we had proper auto regulations. And rather than doing that, rather than moving us in the right direction, the Trump administration has rolled those policies back. And it's not like we can't have clean air every day. We don't have to all be sitting in our homes to have clean air. We just need our government to require more clean cars, and then we can have clean air and still drive to work. Um, You know, and I do think that the appointments that the Trump administration has been making uh, has really under mind uh, climate science across the federal government and has made it so that fossil fuel companies have a direct line towards the administrators that are supposed to be regulating those industries. If Biden does win the White House, I mean, it's not going to be necessarily easy to pass climate legislation. I guess that depends upon the makeup of the Senate. Um, So what kind of hoops may Biden face not only in passing Uh, legislation, but also enacting climate policy. Well, Biden's agenda is very bold. Uh, There aren't bills in Congress that are as ambitious as Biden's plans on climate change. Uh, And there need to be I mean, we could say the Green New Deal resolution was as ambitious, but that wasn't really a piece of legislation. It was a conversation starter in many ways. So we need some of the ideas that have been developed by the House uh, Select Committee on the Climate Crisis and the Senate Democrats Committee on the Climate Crisis. You know, they've come up with hundreds of pages of ideas on what we could be doing about climate change. And we need them to be introducing bills that put a lot of those ideas into action in early 2021. Uh, There will be challenges for sure in the Senate. It's just going to 
you know, be decided in this election in many ways. How many seats are the Democrats going to pick up? Who is going to be controlling the key committees in both the Senate and the House? Those are really the issues. Um, you know, and where the House is concerned, I feel that uh, in many ways, Nancy Pelosi has been a climate champion. She passed the Waxman-Markey bill way back in 2009. She actually got that done. And so, and we've seen that leadership too reflected in the select committee on the climate crisis which has come out with very bold ideas on tackling this problem so i think a lot of the issue is going to come to the senate and what they're going to do with their rules and whether or not they can think about passing climate legislation through a budget bill or if you know 51 votes is going to be enough to actually tackle this crisis so you know you've said in your writing that the best climate policy would be one that cleans up the power sector, the electricity sector, and it sets standards. And, and I, I saw in your writing that you said it would reduce about 70% of, of emissions. Can you tell me more about that? And is that correct? Well, lately, I'm thinking it's more like 80% because I had a great conversation with uh, a scientist who wrote a report with uh, UC Berkeley and Grid Lab. And what they did was they estimated how fast can we clean up our electricity system. It's called the 2035 report. You can just go to 2035report.com. And it turns out that we can use clean electricity to power not just our transportation sector through, for example, cars, not just our homes through, for example, heat pumps and induction stoves, um, but also parts of heavy industry. Certain parts of heavy industry are going to be really hard to electrify because they require very high temperatures to do things like create steel, but other parts of our heavy industry will be possible to electrify. So if we clean up our electricity system, we're not just reducing emissions from that sector. We're going to use that clean power to clean up a bunch of other sectors, transportation, buildings, and even parts of heavy industry. And that could get us maybe as much as 80% of our carbon emissions eliminated. So oftentimes when people think about climate change, it feels very overwhelming. It's so complicated. Emissions come from everywhere. But actually focusing on the clean electricity sector as the first linchpin is a way to think about cleaning up the entire economy or at least, you know, four fifths of it. And that's why the Biden plan for 100% clean electricity by 2035 is so transformative, because it's not just about cleaning up the electricity sector. It's also about cleaning up a bunch of other parts of our economy that can be electrified and powered with that clean energy. So I, I want to veer off just a teeny bit and talk about something that's in the news right now, which is the Supreme Court. You know, that looks like for all intents and purposes, it is headed for a 6-3 conservative majority. So what might that mean uh, for regulating carbon dioxide under the Clean Air Act? Well, we recently have seen Amy Coney Barrett in the hearings say that she's, quote, not a scientist and that she has read some things about climate change, but she doesn't really have firm views on it. And that is like saying, I've read some things about gravity, but I don't really have firm views on it. Climate change is a fact. It's not an issue of opinion. And it's very disturbing to have somebody nominated who would say something like that and parrot talking points from climate deniers. It's so common that we hear people say, well, I'm not a scientist as an excuse for not accepting scientific facts. You don't have to be a scientist to know that the 
COVID pandemic is real or that gravity is real or that DNA exists. This is a really problematic statement. So yes, we are headed for a dark time in our highest court of the land, but that doesn't mean that we can't have climate action. I think what it does is it puts even more pressure on Congress to act on this crisis and not allow rules that were made up in the last couple of decades you know, things that say we can't pass legislation unless we have 60 votes and things like that, you know, it allows us to say that those should not be the decision-making criteria for whether or not we tackle this crisis. Because if Congress acts fundamentally, then it takes away a lot of the power of the Supreme Court to undermine the action of our federal government. You might get some pushback from a few people who are listening to this. One of those things is, that you know climate change is fact well just to bring up that the consensus among climate scientists you know it was somewhere around 97 percent of practicing climate scientists publishing climate scientists believe that climate change or accept that climate change is in fact uh, happening and is caused by humans now that number is likely 99 percent would you say that is a correct assessment <laughs> Absolutely. It's hard to find a scientist who doesn't realize that climate change is real. The only way you can find one is they got to be in the pocket of the big oil industries and literally paid to lie about the fact. So, you know, it's a little bit like trying to find a scientist who uh, doesn't know that gravity exists. And you also mentioned about the Supreme Court nominee and um, her saying that she's not a scientist. That's something that we have heard over and over again from lawmakers who don't really want to address climate change over the past several years. It's essentially a new type of, uh, of climate denial, which it used to be climate change is not real. Now it's, well, I don't know. I'm not a scientist. Would you say that's correct? Absolutely. You don't need to be a scientist. There are so many facts that we accept from science, right? Even scientists themselves, they may not be a specialist on every area. And the scientific enterprise is about uh, deferring to others based on evidence and expertise. And so, you know, you don't have to be a climatologist to know that climate change is real. Leah Stokes, thank you so much for joining us. This has been a wonderful conversation. Oh, thank you, Jeff. Thanks for listening to the CBS This Morning podcast. If you want to catch the day's top stories in under 20 minutes, be sure to subscribe to CBS This Morning News on the Go on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to CBS Mornings on the Go ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at Wondery.com survey. Do you ever feel like there's nothing new in the news? You know there are urgent things happening in the world around you. But all you hear is noise. That's why we made What Next? Our goal is to tell you the stories you haven't heard before. Or maybe a different side to the story you thought you already knew all about. I'm Mary Harris, the host of What Next? And I love my job because it helps me cut through the noise of the news. And then I get to bring it to you. Together, we can figure out what next. I'm Mo Rocca, and I'm excited to announce season four of my podcast, Mobituaries. I've got a whole new bunch of stories to share with you about the most fascinating people and things who are no longer with us. 
from famous figures who died on the very same day to the things I wish would die, like buffets. Listen to Mobituaries with Mo Rocca on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts.